Section 14 of the Science History of the Universe, Volume 8. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Science History of the Universe, Volume 8, edited by Francis Rott Wheeler. Part 1, Pure Mathematics, Chapter 7, Analytic Geometry, Part 2. The two theories of choice and chance are very closely bound up together. Choice is made up of two branches, those problems which deal with arrangements and those with combinations alone. A problem of the first type is to find the number of ways in which ten men may be seated at a round table. The first man has manifestly no choice. He may be seated anywhere. After he is seated, the second man has nine choices, the third eight, and so on until the tenth man who has but one choice. It is a principle that if a thing may be done in A ways and another in B ways, the two together may be done in A times B ways. Therefore, the ten men may be seated in 9 times 8 times 7 times 6 times 5 times 4 times 3 times 2 times 1 ways, which is denoted by 9 exclamation mark or 9 factorial. The general expression for n things taken r at a time is n factorial divided by open parentheses n minus r close parentheses factorial. If there is no distinction between the objects, that is, the order is immaterial, a choice is called a combination as defined in how many ways a committee of four men may be chosen from 25 men. The mode of solution is to find in how many ways 25 men may be arranged if chosen four at a time, and divide the number of arrangements possible with the four men. If an event happens A times and fails B times, the probability of the event happening is A divided by A plus B, and the probability of it failing is B divided by A plus B. A divided by B are the odds in favor, and B divided by A are the odds against the event happening. This may be illustrated in finding the probability of throwing at least four with two dice. The number of favorable cases is the number of cases in which four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve may be thrown. The number of unfavorable cases is the number of ways in which 2 and 3 can be thrown. 2 can be thrown in one way, by throwing 1 and 1. 3 can be thrown in two ways, 2 and 1 and 1 and 2. The number of unfavorable cases is 3. The total number of cases is 6 times 6, or 36. The number of favorable cases is then 36 minus 3, or 33 and the probability of throwing at least 4 is 33 divided by 36, or 11 twelfths. If 52 cards be dealt to 4 players, the probability that a particular player will hold 4 aces is 11 over 4,165. An application of the theory of probability may be given in determining the expectancy of a player in the ordinary crap game. A and B play with two dice, A throwing and B being the banker. If A throws 7 or 11, he wins. If he throws 3 or 2 aces or 2 sixes, B wins. 
but if he throws four, five, six, eight, nine, or ten, he continues throwing to duplicate his first throw, in which event he wins. If in throwing a seven comes up, B wins. To determine the chances of the two players, the chance of throwing seven or eleven is two ninths, of two, three, or twelve is one ninth, of four, five, six, eight, nine, or ten is two thirds. If A throws four, his chance of winning the second throw is one twelfth times two thirds, of the third throw is one twelfth of two thirds of open parentheses, one minus open parentheses, one twelfth plus one sixth close parentheses, close parentheses, or one twelfth of two thirds of three fourths. A's chance of winning on four is two ninths plus one twelfth of two thirds, open parentheses, one plus three fourths plus three fourths squared plus three fourths cubed plus dot 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 close parentheses equals four ninths. A's chance of winning on five is two ninths plus one ninth of two thirds open parentheses one plus thirteen eighteenths plus thirteen eighteenths squared plus thirteen eighteenths cubed plus dot 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 equals twenty two forty fifths. A's chance of winning on 6 is 2 ninths plus 5 thirty-sixths of 2 thirds, open parentheses, 1 plus 25 thirty-sixths plus 25 thirty-sixths squared plus 25 thirty-sixths cubed plus dot 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 equals 52 ninths. A's chance of winning on 8, 9, or 10 is the same as 6, 5, or 4. A's chance is then one-third, open parentheses, four-ninths plus twenty-two-forty-fifths plus fifty-two-ninety-ninths, close parentheses, equals seven hundred twenty-two over one thousand four hundred eighty-five. B's chance is one minus seven twenty-two over fourteen eighty-five equals seven sixty-three over fourteen eighty-five. The odds in favor of B are 763 over 722. Zare's solution. One very important application of probability is to determine the probable error in a number of observations. In 1805, Legendre gave his law of least squares, which may be simply stated as follows. The most probable value of a measured quantity is that in which the sum of the squares of the difference between this quantity and the observed values, provided they are equally good, is a minimum. Probability finds its greatest function, however, in determining the probable death rate upon which are based insurance premiums. When it is recalled that at the present time the greatest amount of money that is involved in any single business is that in insurance, the words of Augustus de Morgan penned in 1838 seem more than prophetic. Quote, the theory of insurance, with its kindred sides of annuities, deserves the attention of the academic bodies. Stripped of its technical terms and its commercial associations, it may be presented from a point of view which will give it strong moral claims to notice. 
though based on self-interest, yet it is the most enlightened and benevolent form which the projects of self-interest ever took. It is, in fact, in a limited sense, and a practicable method, the agreement of a community to consider the goods of its individual members as common. It is an agreement that those whose fortune it shall be to have more than the average success shall resign the overplus in favor of those who have less. And though, as yet, it has only been applied to the reparation of the evils arising from the storm, fire, premature death, disease, and old age, yet there is no placing a limit to the extensions which its application might receive if the public were fully aware of its principles and of the safety with which they may be put in practice. Close quote. The science of probability had its origin in a problem proposed in 1654 to Blaise Pascal by Chevalier de Mer, a professional gambler. It is now known as the problem of points. Two players want each a given number of points in order to win. If they separate, how should the stakes be divided? Pascal's solution is as follows. Two players play a game of three points, and each player has staked 32 pistoles. Suppose that the first player has gained two points, and the second player one point. They have now to play for a point on this condition, that if the first player wins, he takes all the money at stake, namely 64 pistoles. And if the second player gains, each player has two points, so that if they leave off playing, each ought to take 32 pistoles. Thus, if the first player gains 64 pistoles belong to him, and if he loses, 32 pistoles belong to him. If, then, the players do not wish to play this game, the first player would say to the second, I am certain of 32 pistoles if I lose this game. And as for the 32 pistoles, perhaps I shall have them, and perhaps you will have them. The chances are equal. Let us then divide these pistoles equally, and give me also the 32 pistoles, of which I am certain. Then the first player would have 48 pistoles, and the second 16 pistoles. Next, suppose that the first player has gained two points, and the second player none, and that they are about to play for a point. The condition, then, is that if the first player wins this point, he secures the game and the 64 pistoles, and if the second player gains this point, they will be in the position just examined, in which the first player is entitled to 48 pistoles and the second to 16 pistoles. Thus, if they do not wish to play, the first player would say to the second, If I gain the point, I gain 64 pistoles. If I lose, I am entitled to 48 pistoles. Give me the 48 pistoles, of which I am certain, and divide the other 16 equally, since our chances of gaining the point are equal. Thus, the first player gets 56 pistoles and the second 8 pistoles. Finally, suppose that the first player has gained one point and the second player none. If they proceed to play for a point, the condition is that if the first player gains it, the players will be in the position first examined, in which the first player is entitled to 56 pistoles. If the first player loses the point, each player is then entitled to 32 pistoles. Thus, if they do not wish to play, the first player would say to the second, Give me the 32 pistoles of which I am certain, and divide the remainder of the 56 pistoles equally, that is, divide 24 pistoles equally. Thus, the first player will have the sum of 32 and 12 pistoles, that is, 44 pistoles, and consequently, the second player will have 20 pistoles.
Thus, the science which underlies the greatest business of the 20th century had its origin at the gaming table. Pascal corresponded with his friend Fermat regarding the problem, and the subject continued to be developed to such an extent that Professor Todd Hunter's History of Probability, from which the above problem is taken, covers 624 pages. The theorem at the base of probability is thus stated by James Bernoulli. Quote, if a sufficiently large number of trials is made, the ratio of the favorable to the unfavorable events will not differ from the ratio of their respective probabilities beyond a certain limit in excess or defect, and the probability of keeping within these limits, however small, can be made as near certainty as we please by taking a sufficiently large number of trials. Close quote. The inverse problem of reasoning from known events to probable causes is much more complicated. De Morgan thus states the principle of the inverse probability, quote, When an event has happened and may have happened in two or three different ways, that way which is most likely to bring about the event is most likely to have been the cause, close quote. Another principle due to Bayes is thus stated, Knowing the probability of a compound event and that of one of its components, we find the probability of the other by dividing the first by the second. Mitchell, more than a century ago, gave a classic attempt to apply the inverse theorem when he strove to find the probability that there is some cause for the fact that the stars are not uniformly distributed over the heavens. The following witty dictum is from Poisson. Quote, after having calculated the probability of an error, it is necessary to calculate the probability of an error in the calculations. Quote. One thus gets in an endless regression by in turn calculating the probability of the correctness of the next preceding calculation. Poincaré closed his lectures on the calculus of probabilities with this skeptical statement. Quote, the calculus of probabilities offers a contradiction in the terms itself which serve to designate it, and if I would not fear to recall here a word too often repeated, I would say that it teaches us chiefly one thing, i.e., to know that we know nothing. An idea floating about in the minds of mathematicians for centuries most nearly approached in the method of exhaustions used by Archimedes and in the method of Indivisibles of Cavallere, pupil of Galileo, was, by aid of the introduction of the notion of variable into geometry, finally evolved almost simultaneously and independently by the two greatest mathematicians of the period, Sir Isaac Newton and Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, and has become the mighty engine of analysis, the first and only mathematical subject to be dignified by the article the, the calculus. This subject is based upon two fundamental and comparatively easily understood operations, the direct operation differentiation and its inverse integration. A few preliminary ideas are necessary. A variable quantity is said to have a limit when it approaches a constant quantity in such a way that the difference between the variable and the constant quantity can be made to become and remain less than any previously assigned value. The constant quality is called the limit of the variable. The condition is very often added 
that the variable never actually reaches its limit, but this is not necessary and very much narrows the application of the notion. Starting with the number 1, add to it its 1 half, and continue the process indefinitely, each time adding 1 half of the next preceding addition, thus 1 plus 1 half plus 1 quarter plus 1 eighth plus 1 sixteenth plus dot dot dot. It is evident that this sum never reaches 2, but may, by proceeding far enough, be made to differ from 2 by as small a number as we please. Inscribe in a circle a regular polygon. Take the midpoint of each arc and join it with straight lines to the two adjacent vertices of the polygon. A new polygon is formed with double the number of sides of the original. Continuing indefinitely, a polygon may be formed which in area and perimeter differs from the circle by as little as we please, but the circle is never actually reached. A quantity which approaches zero as a limit is called an infinitesimal. An infinitesimal is not necessarily an exceedingly small quantity. The smallness is not the important matter, but the fact that it can be made small. Zeno's paradox of Achilles and the tortoise rested upon the consideration of infinitesimals. Achilles was a certain distance behind the tortoise and attempting to overtake it. Zeno argues that he can never do so, for, says he, while Achilles travels half the distance between them, the tortoise has traveled a certain distance, while Achilles is traveling half the remaining distance, the tortoise has moved forward, etc. If these half-distances were traveled in finite intervals of time, Zeno's argument would be correct, but the intervals of time are approaching zero as well as the distances. The differential calculus is based on finding the limit of the ratio of two infinitesimals. Suppose a train travels without stop from A to B, a distance of 100 miles in 100 minutes, and is required to find its speed. One says a mile a minute, but the train started from rest at A and comes to rest at B, whence there are points at which the speed is less than that given and at other points greater, so that the speed assigned is not the speed at every point, but what might be called an average speed. Suppose it is required to find the speed at a particular point C. One would proceed in this manner. Measure a distance of, say, 1,000 feet along the track of which C is the middle point, time the train over this distance. The ratio of the distance to the time is the speed or rate, but it cannot be said that this is the rate at C. It is an average rate over the 1,000 feet. Take a shorter distance, say 500 feet. The ratio of this shorter distance to the shorter time is more nearly the rate at C than the former. Continue this process, and the ratio of the distance to the time, as each becomes indefinitely small, comes nearer and nearer to the exact rate at C. If the motion of the train was subjected to a law by which the limit of this ratio could be found, that limit would be the rate at C. Differentiation is this process of finding the limit of the ratio of two infinitesimals that are mutually dependent. A geometric example will be given. It is required to find the direction in which the point moves which generates the curve in the figure as it passes through the particular position P. This direction will be along a tangent line PR since if the point were to continue in the direction which it is moving at P, it would move in a straight line tangent to the curve at P.
take a second point p prime on the curve and pass a line through p and p prime. Now if p prime moves along the curve towards p, this line swings around toward the limiting position pr. The direction of p p prime is fixed by the angle m p p prime, of which the tangent is m p prime over p m. As p prime approaches p, both m p prime and p m approach zero, but they have a limiting ratio which is equal to m n over p m, or the tangent of the angle m p n. The mode of applying this operation algebraically is quite simple. The coordinates of p are given, say, x1, y1. A second point, p prime, is chosen with coordinates x1 plus h, y1 plus k, and subjected to the condition that p prime lies on the curve. This is done by finding the relation of h and k by substituting x1 plus h and y1 plus k in the equation of the curve in place of x1 and y1. The limit of the ratio of h equals mp and k equals mp prime is then found as h and k approach 0. In the parabola y squared equals 8x, find the direction or slope of the tangent at point p whose coordinates are 2 and 4. Take p prime 2 plus h 4 plus k a point on the curve. Since it lies on the curve, these coordinates must satisfy the equation of the curve. Putting 2 plus h for x and 4 plus k for y, one has, open parentheses, 4 plus k, close parentheses, squared, equals 8, open parentheses, 2 plus h, close parentheses, or 16 plus 8k plus k squared equals 16 plus 8h, or 8k plus k squared equals 8h. Solving for k over h, one has k over h equals 8 over 8 plus k. As k and h approach 0 together, their ratio becomes 1, or the tangent of the angle which the line of direction makes with the x-axis is 1, from which the angle may be found by consulting a table of tangents to be 45 degrees, or the line which is tangent to the parabola at the point 2, 4, makes an angle with the x-axis of 45. The sign of the operation of differentiation is d over dx. The inverse operation, or integration, may be looked at from two viewpoints. If one chooses to consider it as simply the inverse operation, in order to perform it, it would only be necessary to take cognizance of the steps in the direct process and reverse them. This would seem to be a very simple matter, but in practice frequently becomes extremely difficult or impossible. The second phase of integration is that of a summation of infinitesimals. y equals f of x is the equation of a curve. If y is differentiated with respect to x, the result is a new function of x, say, capital X. Then d over dx equals y, or dy over dx equals capital X, from which dy equals capital X dx. This x, being a function of x if plotted, gives a curve as in the figure. The y of any point in the curve is found by putting the corresponding value of x in the equation y equals capital X of x, as x gives y, x2 gives y2, etc. 
in dy equals capital X dx, take dx1 equals the interval x1, x2, and let x1, x2 equal x2, x3 equal x3, x4, etc. Then for x equals x1, dy1 equals y1 times dx1 equals y2 times x1, x2 equals area of rectangle x1, r. For x equals x2, dy2 equals y2 times dx equals y2 times x2, x3 equals area of rectangle x2, s. For x equals x3, dy3 equals y3 times dx equals y3 times x3, x4 equals area of rectangle x3, t. Now if dx and dy each be made to approach 0 and the sum of the dy's be taken to find y, this sum will be equal to the sum of the areas of these rectangles, as each rectangle has its base diminished toward 0. When this occurs, the small shaded triangles approach 0, and the sum of the rectangles approaches the area bounded by the curve, the x-axis, y1 and y4. This is written as y equals epsilon large x dx equals area APQB, where epsilon means the sum of all terms of the form x dx as dx approaches 0. If x be placed equal to y and the curve plotted as above, and also y equals f of x, the relations of the two curves is that the ordinate of any point of the second curve indicates the area under the first curve from a chosen point on the curve to the point for which the ordinate is taken. When integration is regarded as above as a summation, the sign epsilon is sometimes used, although it is customary to write the usual sign of integration, s. With the invention of the analytic geometry and the calculus, modern mathematics begins. Speaking of its development from the date 1758, which closes the period covered by the third volume of Moritz Cantor's Geschichte der Mathematik, Professor Kaiser says, that date, however, but marks the time when mathematics, then schooled for over a hundred eventful years in the unfolding wonders of analytical geometry and the calculus, and rejoicing in the possession of these, the two most powerful among instruments of human thought, had but fairly entered upon her modern career. And so fruitful have been the intervening years, so swift the march along the myriad tracks of modern analysis and geometry, so abounding and bold and fertile withal, has been the creative genius of the time, that to record even briefly the discoveries and the creations since the closing date of Cantor's work would require an addition to his great volumes of a score of volumes more. Close quote. And throughout all this wonderful growth, nothing is lost or wasted. The achievements of the old Greek geometers are as admirable now as in their own days, and they remain the eternal heritage of man. End of section 14.